Hey friends, this is Michael Carey and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This episode is the second of a three-part women's panel series. Now, if you missed the first of this three-part series, you might want to go back and listen to that one first before listening to this episode. I know you're going to enjoy listening to these incredible ladies and their wisdom in answering the questions on this women's panel podcast. So the next question, how can we determine who in our extended family and friend circle would be helpful to disclose our story to and who should we avoid telling? Okay, that's me. And that is a really tough question. It really depends on your family and friend circle. And I know some people's tendency is to tell everybody in their family and friend circle right away and others is to keep it a total secret from everybody. And I'm not sure there's an entire right or wrong, but what I do know is you cannot untell it. Once you've told your family and friends, you can't take it back. So I would err on the caution of not telling your family and friend circle for this reason, because lots of people still don't even believe that sex addiction is a real addiction or a problem. And even if they do, most people don't understand it at all. And so I would ask you this, how helpful will they be able to be and how much information do they need? I would err on the side of less information to your family and friends. Now, I've heard it said, but aren't you only as sick as your secrets? And what I would say to that is, well, don't keep this a secret. Get help. Get professional help. Reach out to us at Living Truth. Um, Find a therapist in your area who's trained in sex addiction and betrayal trauma. Do not keep it a secret. But there are some things that are private, and you may not want to tell people because it's kind of like you don't go around talking about your sex life in your marriage to people because that's private. So um, it may be some people's tendency to want to tell everyone so that that person with the addiction doesn't get away with it. But there is a way to hold them accountable and to get the help that you need and not keep it a secret without broadcasting it. Um, Most of us have lost a lot of friends and family relationships because of going through issues like this and it being so judged and so misunderstood. Um, Even going to like a pastor can sometimes not be very effective if he doesn't understand this as an addiction um, or understand the way to help with it, it's much more effective to go to somebody who has training in how to help you with it. Um, I think it's good to have some kind of a blanket statement that you tell people because clearly something's wrong, right? But if it's something like, we're going through a personal family crisis that I cannot talk about the details of, but here's how you could help me. And so thinking of and most of the time when we're go- the one going through this, we cannot think clearly enough to go and make our list of here's what I need. Um, that's why we need support. We need somebody else to help be our frontal lobe because that frontal lobe where we have um, executive functioning, impulse control, logic goes offline because our amygdala is firing on overdrive because we're so threatened by this, the, all these sexual secrets in the marriage. Um, that we need somebody else to kind of be our frontal lobe 
a lot of times and to think through what we need and help us think through what we need. So most women find that they need help with things like childcare or they need help with meals and, and things like this. And so it can help to be able to tell people around you, yeah, we're going through a family crisis so that you can get the support you need without airing all the dirty laundry because of the simple fact that people will judge and misunderstand. And sometimes women will get what's called stay shamed where they stay, they just choose to stay for whatever reason and people make judgments and assume they should leave. And so you'll get a lot of unsolicited advice sometimes when you tell people. Um, so if you have a really close relationship and your family is non-judgmental and they are accepting and loving and able to be there for you, you can test the water by seeing how they respond to a little bit of information. Um, and that can help determine if it is safe to tell them more or not. If you have a friend or a family member who has gone through this type of a crisis and you have admired the way you've seen them react and respond to it over time, they may be a safe person for you to talk to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's extremely helpful. And yeah, as, as you were talking, I thought of another scenario I think you'd agree with too. It'd be like uh, if, if, um, if you said stay shame, um, I think that's the first time I heard it said just like that, stay shame. And then the other side of it would be a woman who maybe should leave and, yeah. she, and she's having people tell her, no, you need to stay. Right. There's probably those scenarios. Absolutely. So, you know, the idea of connecting with women especially professional women like you figure you know, women and women in the battle uh, who have been through this before and can help navigate that. So, so valuable, right? To help navigate these uh, uh, areas. <clears throat> okay, uh, this is a question about our children. What's the appropriate amount of detail, speaking of this kind of a um, crisis in, in your life, uh, what's the amount of detail and frequency to share with our children, preteen to teenage, uh, as we walk through the disclosure and recovery? How much of our story should be shared? Uh, how much can we make them a part of the recovery in a healthy way to encourage openness and safety for them? This is tricky. Preteen and teen, I, I would handle every age uh, differently. Um, the younger they are, the less they really should know. I would say that there's pros and cons to talking to pre this this age group that this person's asking about, preteen and teens. Um, so it's not uncommon that one of the kids in this age group has known that one of the parents, like let's say it's dad that has the sex addiction. It's not uncommon that one of those kids knows it already, has walked in on him using porn and he didn't know that they saw him or has seen it on his phone or computer. And that child that has held that secret is um, typically, I would say, traumatized by holding that secret. And so one of the advantages to letting your kids know, hey, dad has an issue with pornography and um, we are getting professional help for this is that they may be already carrying that secret. Now, if you could guarantee that your child had no idea that that's what was happening, um, not really sure how to do that. <laughs> but if you could, I would shield them from knowing any details of what you're dealing with, but I would not act like everything's okay. 
I would want to tell my preteen or teen kids, hey, dad and I are going through a real crisis right now. But what I want you to know is it has nothing to do with you because kids are egocentric by nature. They're always going to think that they had something to do with why there's problems and conflict in the marriage. So reassuring them, this has nothing to do with you. This does not change our love for you, our commitment to you. Um, and I would reassure those kids, we are getting help. We have a counselor. We're going to some groups. We're getting support for our adult issues. And I don't want you to have to carry this burden. What I would not do is rely on preteen or teen kids for emotional support at all. I wouldn't put that on. That's too big of a burden for them to bear. Um, I would take those burdens to peers, to a support group, to a therapist, a coach, um, friends that can bear this with you. But this, I would not share any details with kids. Um, so one possibility to find out if your teenage child knows something already um, about the pornography is to just straight up ask them have you ever seen anything on our home computer or on any of our phones that made you uncomfortable or ask them, you know, some guided questions and let them know you're not in trouble because they're going to assume then that you're trying to bust them and you're not, you're just trying to understand if they know what's going on. If you have any suspicion that they have any clue that there has been pornography in your home, I would definitely tell them this is a thing and we're, we're dealing with this. Um, because they already know that something's wrong. So by telling them something's really wrong, but we're getting help and you don't need to bear this. It's like giving them the benefit of their intuition is intact. Like I can trust my gut. Something's wrong. I sense it. I know it. Even younger kids know something's wrong. Um, and so telling them that helps them trust their judgment and intuition, but also not putting any burden on them don't, I would definitely not talk about what you're learning in therapy, what you're, I mean, unless it's peripheral issues like, hey, and it's, say it's your teenage kid and you just learned more about boundaries. You may talk to them about, hey, there's this great book by Henry Cloud, Boundaries for Teens. Um, I'm learning about boundaries right now. Would you want to read this book? I think that this topic can be really helpful for all of us. Do you see how general that is? Like, you're not talking about how I need to set more boundaries with your dad and that's triangulation. That's really unhealthy to put the kid at the center of the, the marriage issues or problems um, or the addiction issues and problems that one of the spouses has. So to use a child for emotional support through any of this could be considered um, emotional incest. And that is really unhealthy. Um, so if kids were like young adults, um, you may be able to tell them just a little bit more, but again, the main reason I would do that is because they may already know. They may have already suspected that something was wrong in this area or already seen it or felt it. And so what your motive is the most important thing. The motive in telling your kids is to help them trust their gut and intuition, to tell them what is already obvious but definitely not to bring them in to your process or to rely on them for any kind of input or support at all. That is not their job. They are kids, even if they're adult children. Um, even, okay, what's so hard is how often this kind of situation blows up in a family. And it seems to me that the older the kids are when it blows up, 
the more things get turned against the betrayed partner. And part of the reason for that is because the betrayed partner is so traumatized that let's say it's a she, she loses herself and she just loses her, almost kind of like loses her mind. It seems like she's maybe crazy, but she's not crazy. She's traumatized and she doesn't know how to calm herself. She doesn't know how to put the pieces back together. And so what can often happen is the addict pointing to look at how your mother's acting. Like, wow, she's really crazy. It causes such damage to those kids, even though dad may feel like it's making him feel better because she looks like the bad guy now. He's basically done a Darvo on her, deny, attack, reverse victim, offender. All of a sudden he is the victim of her craziness. And he's denying that really the problem is that he has a sex addiction that has traumatized her. And that's why she's acting like this. So I think that obviously if you're the wife and this is what's happening in your relationship and your husband is pointing the finger at you as the crazy person, that's going to make you feel even more crazy because it's so traumatic. The thought of losing that oneness and the bond with your children, um, that is extremely difficult. I don't see how anybody could navigate that without professional help from people trained in sex addiction and trained in things like gaslighting, which DARVO is a form of gaslighting, the deny, attack, reverse victim offender, um, to help you work on that relationship with your kids and repair it. I would say if that wife is going to just try to constantly defend herself, she's probably going to dig a hole. Um, but maybe that that husband needs to know more about how much damage he's causing to his children. He may want his wife to suffer because he's mad that she caught him or found him out, but he's also really damaging his children. So that's my long explanation for that. Yeah, Corey, go ahead. I like that, Kristen. And I just wanted to point out here that another reason why often it seems like the partner's crazy, which of course we all hate that word. Um, and then the, the addict seems so calm is because, um, you know, he, the addict has been numbing for a long time. You know, addictions are coping mechanisms that become ingrained habits. And so if that's how you've been coping and generally what are we coping from? Not feeling difficult feelings. You know, there's, there's really feelings that are really hard to face. And so an addict's been, been numbing for so long, but when the partner gets the news about the betrayal, I mean, she takes that hit with no numbing. If she's not an addict, if she's, that doesn't have these coping mechanisms that are unhealthy, her natural reaction is to feel deeply with no anesthesia. And I think it's, it's just so important to remember that you have this, this person who's just actually feeling real feelings that are very painful therefore she seems she, she's in distress she's in distress and if if the person who's numb can convince other people or their children or whatever that that's craziness or she's just out of control when really it's coming from the blow that she just took um the broken trust finding out something she didn't know about um so yeah, that's that's what it looks like to feel something when you have no drugs, when you have no medication, when you're, um, that's what it can look like. And so I just wanted to point that out because I think if you're the one that you feel like I'm not acting like myself. I mean, I had a friend who 
took a bat to her husband's truck. And it's like, we, we don't want to do things like that because we also don't want to end up in jail. But I can understand why that, that happened, you know? So I think that um, we, we need help. These groups, women in the battle groups, help with things like that. We help each other not to act out in a destructive way to ourselves, <laughs> um, the feelings that we're feeling. But, it, but it, it must be, we must get to a place where that's understandable, uh, that this person took a hit with no drugs. And this person who looks very calm and rational has been numb for years and years. So, of course, they're not not reacting in the same way and they have been you know if they're calm and rational or at least they seem that way you know they have known all along so mm -hmm. this isn't new news to them they've they're known. not in shock they're not in shock because they have you know they, they, they know what they've been doing and and certainly you know um they may be in a state of shock when they're in a state of crisis and so on as well, going through this when, when they're experiencing that heart change, oh my goodness, what have I done to, to my spouse? Uh, so yeah, if they're too calm, that might not be a good sign necessarily. Um, but uh, like you said, maybe they are still medicating and um, it really is just like um, a drug addiction in so many ways. Uh, when you take that away, I know a lot of, um, people who are sexually addicted are experiencing emotions a lot more uh, and a lot more highs and a lot more lows and uh, some people you know start to experience uh, a clinical depression that has been there all along a lot more that they've been medicating and so on so uh, anyways yeah that uh, being too calm does not seem normal in the in the state of a crisis in your marriage um Okay, so our next question is uh, pretty important here. Um, I think we've been alluding to some of these things, but uh, what is the best way to rebuild trust in, after this betrayal has happened? For sure, it's about your actions and your attitude. So it's pretty easy to remember AA, actions, attitude. It's not about your words, which we have already covered. Um, so I'm just going to talk about a few of the actions and attitudes that are helpful for rebuilding trust. Um, actions that are really helpful are ongoing sobriety, um, not perfection, though. And so I think when you do that imperfectly, being truthful about it. Uh, one of the habits you're trying to get over is hiding things. And um, I think many partners say that it's not even the actions that are so difficult as being lied to about them and like not being sure what's going on, not being told the truth. So even though it's gonna seem counterintuitive to you, telling her the truth within an agreed upon amount of time, within a, an agreed upon amount of time, for us it was 24 hours, um, telling the truth builds trust, even if you've done something that you know is gonna hurt her. And it's really easy to think like, I don't wanna hurt you, I don't wanna say it. You might wanna think about who you really don't wanna hurt if you're thinking that. Like you might really be thinking, I don't wanna go through that. I don't wanna feel bad. I don't wanna spiral down into shame. And I didn't want my husband to spiral down into shame either. I didn't want him to be there any more than he did. But the truthfulness really helped build my trust 
even when he made decisions that crossed his values. Um, recovery, which is this ongoing recovery and support from other people. And then empathy, um, being empathetic toward me. The attitudes I memorized, um, Kristen taught me through an acronym, B-O-W, um, brokenness, openness, willingness, and humility, you could add to that. Those are attitudes that are very helpful. And when I saw those attitudes happening, it rebuilt my trust. And on the flip side, if I saw those attitudes not happening, like defensiveness or unwillingness to listen to me, um, even if it didn't have anything to do with pornography or addiction, it hurt my trust. So, um, you know, that those attitudes can be seen no matter what, no matter what the subject is. And so those attitudes changing really help rebuild trust. Um, two other quick things, respecting my boundaries really helped rebuild my trust. And that's willingness. Um, it was hard for me when he said, I love you for a while. And he was willing to stop saying that to me, even though he felt it. Um, because I felt it, it was the action thing. Like, I want to see you in action loving me, not saying it. Because you said you loved me before, but people who love each other don't lie to each other and betray them. Um, I'm sorry he respected the boundary of, of working on actions instead of saying he's sorry. Um, he came over and helped me a lot at the house when we weren't living together. Um, but he, I asked him not to just walk in the house because it felt intrusive to me. So he, he behaved like he was a guest coming to the house. And had he been defensive, like, this is my house. I can come in when I want to. Why are you doing that? That would have been hard. That's defensiveness, which is the opposite of brokenness, openness, willingness, and humility. Um, and then also, along with respecting my boundaries, really listening and responding to my boundary requests, really built my trust over time. And I want to give the one example, because I think it's a difficult one, but um, this was after a long amount of time where he was doing well and he was recovering, but it seemed like his smartphone was the thing that was really causing him the most problems. And it's hard to live without a smartphone right now, but um, I, I remember when we just, I had, there was a big thing that happened. And it, when I say big, I mean, it was, you know, uh, just broken trust after a long time of, um, I don't mean the action had to be super big, but just not telling me the truth about something and I found out, which is huge. And um, he was willing to let go of his smartphone. And um, whenever I share this, he wants to make sure that I tell people that um, that was a huge loss for him. <laughs> it's not like he's in a job where he doesn't need that. <laughs> he does yeah. need it. And, and he has to sign in differently from everybody else at the entire company. And he has to tell people he doesn't have a smartphone. It's, it's not without sacrifice. It's not, I think some people might hear that and think, well, I need my smartphone. Um, so I give that example not to say that you should do that or that you need to do that. But the example here is that that was a boundary request that I had over a pretty long amount of time. And he said, of course, of course, I'll do that. It was the attitude, you know, of course, that, you know, we all know that attitude is non-defensive. And that's what 
you know, built my trust. You can't take time out of it. I think that's the hard part for some people is like, give me the checklist, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then I can come back or we can be normal again. And it's just, you cannot avoid the time issue because it takes time to rebuild trust. It takes time to change your attitude. It takes time for those things to happen. Yeah. And um, when you, when you talk about be normal again, uh, I like to tell guys, well, guess what? This is your new normal uh, for an undetermined amount of time. And putting time limits on rebuilding trust is not helpful, uh, but it feels like pressure. Um, one thing I wanted to add to, uh, I'm not sure how much we've touched on this, but the idea of, of a uh, addict, uh, in this case, you know, mostly it would be men uh, who are um, breaking that trust. The idea of recovery and developing a program um, certainly is going to involve seeing a professional and coming to a support group. And the support groups, we've you know we've uh, talked about women in the battle a few times, and for men that uh, are listening that are not familiar with our support groups, Living Truth that we um, that we run, uh, it is called Men in the Battle, and you can uh, get more information on our website, living-truth.org, and uh, click on. Uh, up on top, MIB for men in the battle. Uh, but that uh, is integral parts of a recovery program, but it does happen every single day of moving yourself forward in a direction of growth and change and maturity. Um, and what, what are we recovering? We're recovering our life back. We're recovering our sexual purity. We're recovering our marriage. And, um, and it really is all about men in the battle is really all about becoming the men that God intended you to become in the first place, becoming the husband that, that, that you always were supposed to be becoming the father that you're meant to be. Um, so yeah, the goals of, of, of uh, instead of just uh, having those things in your life, as far as a restored marriage and, uh, and, and your kids living with you, Really, all in all, the goal of becoming the men that God intended us to become all the way around is the goal of men in the battle. What are the most important things for your husband to understand about your recovery? So in the case uh, where you're uh, in your marriages and you're the partner um, and the husband is the addict, what things does he need to know and understand about your journey and your process? I can go ahead and answer that and um, just say that empathy, if you're working on empathy along with your recovery plan, that is a piece that's going to convey a lot to her. Um, but what, what I think is important for both people to remember is that, um, you know, she's on a healing path. He's on a recovery path and they're going to look different. And sometimes there's therapies and there's ideas that can help both people because there's a lot of trauma under the layers with both usually, but they're going to look different. And it's important to um, try not to control her recovery because it can be scary when you're not sure, you know, are we going to reconcile? How is this going to look in the end? Um, and that's just like healing with anything. You know, if you look at the body, when we have a surgery, we can't always predict what the course of healing is going to look like. And there can be some really big bumps in the road that require longer time. And I remember asking um, Barbara, 
Stephens, you know, that three to five year for healing after your last disclosure, um, you know, really how long does it take? And she said, it takes as long as it takes. Um, and I love that answer. You know, it's a hard answer because there's no real end in sight. Um, but we know that, that healing is possible. It's just that every person is different. Every situation is different and we can't control how long that will take, or we can't always predict what that's going to look like in each coupleship.